0: All right, if you would, uh, let's begin by opening to the book of Isaiah. So we're going to begin tonight in Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to go to about four different places in in Scripture to to put the different parts of this together. What I want to use tonight for is to set the stage for a new sermon series that we're going to start on Sunday, um, and if you're unfortunate enough to be tied to your email during the day, you might have gotten an email from me today, asking whether or not you should wear jeans with holes in them uh, to to church. It's super cheesy, but we're playing off the word holy, and we're also incorporating the idea of having holes in your jeans. And uh, what does it mean to really be holy? You read that in the Bible. You hear, "Be holy, for I am holy," from the Lord. What does it mean to to be holy? And so we're going to begin this Sunday with Isaiah chapter 6, which is one of those core passages about about holiness, about God's glory and splendor and holiness and the way that that impacts us and how we respond. And then we're going to spend about 10 weeks tracing that theme out. The hundred dollar word is sanctification. How does God do that work in our life to to make us holy? How do we grow in that? And there's You can see that from so many different angles in Scripture. And so what I want us to do this fall is is to begin to put those pieces together, begin to figure out how those those things fit together. In order to really understand Isaiah chapter 6, you have to have a little bit of an idea of what's leading into that. And so I want to set the stage for that tonight by by kind of leading into Isaiah chapter 6, looking at the background of it. So if you look at Isaiah chapter 1, you get a little bit of an idea of, of how it begins here. Isaiah chapter 1 the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Verse 2 Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, Have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. You get the feeling this is not going in a good direction for for the people at this point. Um, Even an animal knows its owner, knows who who is in charge of it. Um, And yet, as people we don't recognize our creator. We don't recognize the one who has shaped us and given us life and called us. And so there's, there's a, the word rebellion works really well right here. And, and with the word rebellion comes pride. The enemy to holiness is pride. And you're going to see that theme running through these verses. Verse four, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity offspring of evildoers children who deal corruptly and just the way you'd always want to be described right there you know they have forsaken the lord they have despised the holy one of israel they are utterly estranged why will you still be struck down why will you continue to rebel the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint For the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Just a quick reminder where you are on the Bible history line here. Isaiah begins by writing in a situation where the Assyrians are beginning to come in, um, and first that northern kingdom uh, of Israel is going to fall, but you're also in the book of Isaiah going to see pointers toward the coming of Babylon and the destruction that will happen to the, the southern kingdom. There is a massively huge debate that goes on in the book of Isaiah about whether it's two parts written by two authors continuing the same theme, whether it's one book written by one author, The point being, though, in the whole book, you have the Assyrians and the Babylonians at work here, coming in as foreigners to bring judgment on the people by God's design in response to their pride and their sin and their rebellion. And you get to verse 8. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors... We should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. There's the idea of a remnant. That theme runs huge through Isaiah, this idea that God has provided hope. When everything seems like it's lost, don't worry, there's still a remnant. There are still people who understand his holiness, who are called by his name, who are going to continue this going forward. So in Isaiah, you're going to read a few verses, and it looks like there's no hope. There's no way they're ever getting out of this situation, and then there'll be a flash of hope then everything will fall apart for a few verses. Flash of hope. It just kind of continues this pattern throughout, throughout the book. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Once again, not the kind of people you want to be associated with. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Here's the strange thing even in their downfall, they still have the appearance of being religious. So they've held on to enough of these sacrifices, these offerings, these acts of worship that on the surface they still are doing some of the things they're called to do. The problem is internally they're a mess. Uh, from, from a national standpoint to social relationships, to the way they're carrying out the religion, to the way they're living, they're just a complete mess. But there's just enough of a religious veneer that they're trying to hold on to. Look, look, we're still the people of God. We do X, Y, and Z. And you're going to find quickly, the Lord just has nothing to do with that, that line of thinking. Um, let's see. Verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, just a couple of things from from that set of verses. A really overwhelming reminder that holy worship and sinful living, sinful hearts, do not go together. This idea that we would approach the Lord just in any way we want, and we'll talk about this more on Sunday, but... I don't know about you guys, but I read that set of verses, and I just think about my own heart in gathered corporate worship. Like, does the Lord ever pronounce things like that? Is, is that true of us when, when we gather to worship? And we know that holiness is not confined to what happens when God's people come together, but it is expressed when God's people come together. And so when we come together, is there anything about 11 through 17 that, that speaks to us, that speaks of us. Um, true worship is experienced in the, midst, in the midst of purity and holiness and reverence before the Lord. Um, and any attempt to say, oh, look at us, we're religious, but our hearts are far from the Lord, wants nothing of it. Um, and so, if nothing else tonight, I think for every one of us just to think about, what does it mean to worship the Lord? what does it mean to say on a daily basis i've given myself to him what does it mean to say we've gathered together tonight or on a sunday morning or some other time to to lift him up um, is it with purity and holiness and reverence or is it characterized by what what you see in these verses right here so these are these are intense things to think about there's a lot of weight to to these verses as there should be when we think about worship of the one true god the the one who has all holiness and glory and splendor. And then you get down there to verse 19, and just when it, or verse 18 through 20, just when it feels like there's no hope, there's still the possibility of forgiveness. There's still the possibility that if you are willing and obedient, you're going to eat the good of the land. The Lord is still at work. There's still a possibility of hope and redemption. But verse 20, if you refuse and rebel, you will eat, you'll be eaten by the sword. Kind of a strange phrasing there. Let me show you a couple other places in Isaiah where this happens. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is the word from Isaiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days, this is chapter 2, verse 2, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob." that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord." These are really positive verses. This is that beautiful picture that you're looking for. Verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols, They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Then look at uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to that. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled for the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Look at verse seven or verse twelve. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Skip down to verse seventeen. The haughtiness of man, chapter two, verse seventeen. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You, you get the idea <laughs> that. What the Lord is turning against here is expressions of pride and rebellion, but that will not always be the case. There will be a time where the person who thinks that they are prideful, who thinks that they have everything they need, will be brought low, and those who are low and humble from the Lord will be raised up. God opposes the pride, but he lifts up the humble. Uh, we, we see that image throughout, throughout Scripture. Uh, chapters 3 and 4, are more judgment, we're not going to read any particular verses from there, but it, it's just this, this strain of judgment in chapters 3 and 4. You get down to chapter 4, verse 2, and watch what happens, though. Chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. "'Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. "'When the Lord shall have washed away "'the filth of the daughters of Zion "'and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem "'from its midst by a spirit of judgment "'and by a spirit of burning. "'Then the Lord will create over the whole site "'of Mount Zion and over her assemblies "'a cloud by day and smoke "'and the shining of a flaming fire by night "'for over all the glory there will be a canopy.'" There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So, chapters 3 and 4, beginning to 4, complete judgment. Chapter 4, verse 2, all of a sudden, here comes another image of hope. (laughs) This is not going to end with everybody excluded from the people of God. There will be those who are made holy. There will be those who remain, and they will receive of all of God's good blessings. Then you get to chapter 5. And Isaiah begins to use a parable. Um, Jesus obviously uses parables and illustrations in the New Testament. It was common for prophets to use stories like this. And and look at the one he uses in chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. So it should start out happy. This, This should be a good thing. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it. And cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. At that point, everything is set for the grapes to come, for the fruit to come. End of verse 2, but it yielded wild grapes, not the fruit that was expected or desired. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? This is an idea of the people can never say, "Well, if God would have given us this, if God would have done that, then we would have been holy." Uh, which is always a danger for us as well. Uh, if God would have done this, or God would have done that, then we would have really been holy. Second Peter one, three says that God has provided everything we need for life and godliness. And it only comes through Jesus Christ. So we can never look at the Lord and say, if you would have done this or done that, then we would have really been holy. Through Christ, he has provided everything necessary for life and godliness. Everything necessary for holiness. You skip over to verse 15 and 16 of that chapter, of chapter 5. That pride comes back again. Chapter 5, verse 15. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. So what you have established in chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah is really the story of Israel, the story of God's people, called to holiness, called to produce fruit, called to live for him, and yet live in rebellion, live in pride, and ultimately face judgment because they've turned against the one who's given them life, the one who has established them. What do you find when you get to chapter 6? Chapter 6, verse 1 Chapter six, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, that first phrase there in verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, can feel like a throwaway phrase a little bit. It's just giving you some context. Except it's not. (laughs) That first phrase of chapter six is meant to be an intentional transition from all that's been established in chapters one through five. Here's the reason we know that: go to Second Chronicles, your favorite book in the Bible. I know you read it this morning, but if you didn't, um, Second Chronicles, chapter twenty-six. To find Second Chronicles. I suggest the table of contents or having a phone. But if you don't have that, um, if you go to the Book of Psalms and turn left, I actually find that easier to go that direction than to start from the beginning and work your way back. Um, remember that First and Second Chronicles. This is oversimplified, but it still works as a good a good reminder. First and Second Chronicles essentially retells. 1 Samuel through 2 Kings. So you have 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Those four books are retold from a, you could say, a later perspective in 1 and 2 Chronicles. So you're getting a lot of the same stories, but sometimes you get more emphasis, sometimes you get less emphasis. 1 and 2 Chronicles really builds up David. It's written to a later audience, and so they're reestablishing their their connection with David and with the kingdom. So you get to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, look what you get. You get the story of Uzziah. Chapter 26, verse 1. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. So pause just a moment. Think about the youth outside right now. Pick one of them that's 16 and then establish that person as king. Uh, And then you know what they got themselves (laughs) into at that point. He built Elah and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Verse 3. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. When you read through the kings, you realize what a surprising phrase that is. Because normally it says that the king did evil as his father had done evil. Very, very rarely do you get this phrasing that he had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 5, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. Who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So, from verse 8, really all the way down through verse 15, you kind of get a retelling of that prosperity, of the things that he had done. But then look down at verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. You can just write that phrase out, underline it, highlight it, that describes my problems, that describes your problems, Um, you can stretch that across governments, societies. Um, When he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. You probably, uh, hopefully you haven't done this a whole lot, but you, you've probably seen some news reports recently about people in pretty high positions, including religious positions, uh, where there's been sexual abuse that's happened, um, and, and you just see it, and, and don't immediately go to the Catholic Church, just stay right within the Southern Baptist world, or even the evangelical world, and those same same stories are out there. One of the things that I've, I've heard in reference to this, and I think is is really just spot on. Oftentimes, those, those sins that are committed, almost always by men, not always men, but almost always by these men in, in religious positions, aren't primarily about sex, they're about power. Is it about sex? Certainly, there's, there's that temptation there, there's, but more than anything, these are sins of pride and power as much as they are sexual sins. I'm in this position, nobody can stop me, Nobody has any sort of control over me. I've reached this, and you begin to think, I can do whatever I want when you reach a certain position of power. When he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. But he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah. I mean, just think about the guts of these guys to say, we're going to go in and confront the king about this, about, about what's happening. Because he's doing something here. He's partaking, leading out in religious, ritual. he's not supposed to have anything to do with. So he's essentially said, God, you've told us how to worship. I'm the king. I'm proud. You know, proud. I'm going to do this how I want. I'm strong. I'll do this how I want. Verse 18, they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Verse 19, then Uzziah was angry. Another phrase to underline or write out here. He sinned because of his strength and his pride. He said, I'm in charge, I'll do what I want, doesn't matter what God said. He's confronted, and what's his response? He gets angry. Instead of saying, yes, you're right, what you're going to see on Sunday morning, and what you already know to be true from, from Isaiah chapter 6, is when Isaiah is confronted, he responds in a completely different way. And so Isaiah's response in Isaiah chapter 6, that we'll look at Sunday, is meant as a purposeful contrast to Uzziah's response when he is confronted uh, in his sin. Uzziah is confronted, he becomes angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. So, just like you saw, just like we saw in Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, the story of Uzziah is a situation where everything should have been prosperous, everything was going well. But pride, strength, rebellion led to sin and led to God's judgment. I don't think anybody's going to do this, but just in case we were tempted to, if you're tempted to say, man, I'm glad I'm not like Isaiah 1 through or man, I'm not glad I'm not like King Uzziah, there's always Romans chapter 3 uh, to, to remind us of that. If you turn over to Romans chapter 3, Israel's story, pride and rebellion against the glory of God. Uzziah's story, pride and rebellion against the glory of God. Owen's story, pride and rebellion against the glory of God. Unless you think that you get out of that so easily. Um, Just start in, in Romans chapter 3, down in verse 9. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you were looking for the reference to pride, there it shines, right there in in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, all that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is just covering the idea that no one gets out of this. Um, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Israel's story, Uzziah's story, our story. Pretty negative situation if it ends there. Go to Philippians chapter 2. When you live in a world and you live in a body, characterized by pride, rebellion, sin, the right question to ask is, where, oh Lord, does the victory come? Like, what, where do I turn? What, what hope is there? Um, I know that you could lead me to the next point. You already know the next point. You've been around church, you know your Bible, you, you know how this story ends. Best you can, though, think of it from the perspective of someone who is absolutely without hope. They come to the end of themselves. They begin to face up to their pride and rebellion. They see they've fallen short of God's glory. You really are like that Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? How how do I ever escape from this? What what hope is there? Philippians chapter 2 is a good place to go in reference to this. There's so many other places you could go. But Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. So if anybody ever had a claim to pride and establishing themselves, here it is. Did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. The death Israel faced, the death Uzziah faced, the death we face, Jesus faced as well, because out of that, therefore God has highly exalted him, in verse 9, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Then listen to that last phrase, to the glory of God, the Father, the l- glory of God that was diminished by the story of Israel, Isaiah 1 through5, essentially mocked in some sense by Uzziah, the way he approached that worship, that we have fallen far short of, based on Romans 3:23. The only way to return to that glory is through Jesus Christ, what He has done for us and what he has done in us israel's story isaiah's story our story Jesus' story pride and punishment on one side humility holiness hope on the other side that's why the book of isaiah all this pain all this punishment all this distress but immediately there'll be references to hope Because there's always that hope, there's always that healing through the humility that says, God, I can't come to you on my own. It is only by your power, only by your grace that that way is made possible. And so, as we think about the theme of holiness over the next few months, we have to see it against that that foil of pride. When we realize our pride, we realize our rebellion in response to that, God's holiness is all the greater because he has allowed us to experience that through Jesus. A couple of things here at the end just to, just to think about. Number one, where does pride creep into my life? Even as we are being made holy through Jesus, established as holy, we still fight against that pride. If you turn your little paper over, which you probably already, I know you read ahead, which is fine, but if you turn it over and you haven't looked at the back, there's a little list here, To diagnose pride, Uh, this goes back to some material from Jonathan Edwards, uh, but it was kind of put in this list by uh, an author who is at the Austin Stone Church, um, pretty well-established, respected church, and this is that list this lady put together. Number one, how do I know if I'm prideful? Fault finding. I love this quote from Edwards. The humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. I mean, just tack that one up, like, put it right in front of you. Uh, the reference to a busybody, a, being a busybody is actually a reflection of pride. And we, we don't always think about it like that way, but, but when we act like a busybody, it's a sign of everybody else has problems, but I've pretty much gotten it together, and so I get in everybody else's business And I probably should be a little bit more concerned with my my own business. Um, So if you have a tendency or I have a tendency toward fault-finding, behind that is probably pride. Number two, a harsh spirit, someone who just shows contempt and irritation and belittling of others, speaks from a position of pride. Uh, If you get through this list, don't find yourself. (laughs) Man, why? (laughs) Yeah, you're Jesus. But uh, number three, superficiality. A prideful person has a focus on the things on, on surface things over what happens in secret. So if I'm prideful, I'm always obsessed with the outside, with the appearance of things. Everything has to be just right; has to appear just right, even though things are completely falling apart under the surface. Uh, someone who is struggling with pride is apt to make sure their social media page just looks absolutely ideal. My life is perfect. Look at this. When you know behind the scenes, it's just. It's just a mess. But your pride says, I've got to prop this up. I can't let anybody see that things are bad. It's got to look good. My family's got to look right. My life has to look right. Pride says that has to be the case, and it's a dangerous way to live. Number four, defensiveness. When you find, find yourself, like Uzziah, confronted, what do you do in response to being confronted? You become angry. You can check that reality of pride based on how you respond when someone speaks into your life. Are you receptive to that? Do you take that in? Or do you immediately become defensive? Um, number five, presumption before before God. This is the idea of coming before God in an irreverent matter, manner. Um, I just walk. We'll talk about this on Sunday, and I don't want to make too much of this language. But behind this is often phrases like the big man upstairs um, or... You refer to God in ways that just frankly are, are pretty demeaning you know and, and I know people use that in light language, but there's a lot of pride that can come with that type of with that type of reference uh, reference to to God. number six, desperation for attention, uh, boasting even that codependency, passive aggressive needing to be needed. I, I need someone to pay attention to me, even though I'm not a forthcoming person. Uh, driven by human pride is just pride, I need somebody to look at me, I need somebody to pay attention to me, um, it can reflect pride. And, and neglecting others, so pride prefers some people over others, especially desiring the attention of those with power and neglecting those who have little to give. I know you can find pride <laughs> in your life and, and begin to sense it without being confronted with a list like this, but a list like this can be helpful because as I was thinking through it today, you just begin to think about those times in your life of Lord I know that's not honoring to you. It's, it's not reflective of the gospel. It's not reflective of the holiness you want to work in me. And so you begin to use a list like this to find those areas and say, God, cleanse me, heal me, make, make me holy the way you want me to be. Uh, so I hope that's helpful to you. So looking for where pride creeps into your life, um, I've flipped back to the front now looking at those bottom bottom points. Number one, where does pride creep into my life? Number two, how can I grow in the relationship between humility and holiness? We'll never truly be holy the way God has called us to be if we're not also humble. Humility and holiness are always meant to, to go together. So, how do I grow in that? And number three, how can I become a person of hope? Uh, r- humility, meekness, is not defeatism. <laughs> Sometimes we, we tie those two together, and it's not the case at all. We have incredible hope in the victory of Jesus. So, so there's confidence. Confidence is not a bad thing. But w- remember, we boast only in the cross. So, so my confidence in life, my, my stability in life, boasting is all tied to what Jesus has done, which in response to that makes me a hopeful person, um, not someone who's condemning, not someone who's defeatist, not someone, I think George referred to this very well last Sunday, just saying, as the people of God, we should be people of hope. We're not the ones who moan. We're not the ones who groan. We're not the ones who see everything wrong. We're the ones who say, Hey, I know everything's bad. You're right, it is. But let me point you to Jesus who has made the way, who's shown us what holiness looks like. And so, what I want us to see tonight, though, is how pride is so dangerous in the context of holiness. And so, as we think about holiness over the next couple of months, as we pursue what that looks like in our lives and our church, we're constantly fighting against that pride because we know we want to focus on his glory not not our own so let's pray and we will uh, we'll wrap up tonight fathers we take a second here before we go and uh, pick up kids and, and head home help us to start in our own hearts for me to start in my own heart as, as a pastor the Frankly, the worst type of pride comes with pastoral pride. So God, I pray that you would guard our church against that. God, I pray that we would be characterized by great confidence in Jesus and by great humility before you in worship and in holiness. God, show us in our church, even corporately, where there are elements of pride, how we approach things, show us in our lives individually where there are those elements of pride because they affect our marriages. Pride can destroy marriages. Pride makes it so hard to parent, so hard to be a friend. So God, I pray that by your spirit that you would root those things out of our life, that you would point us back to Christ and that image of humility and holiness that we have in him. And God, let us be people of hope. Let us be people who are able to share the good news of Jesus with the world around us through how we live, through how we speak. And, God, that you would do that work in our church in in the days to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks for being here. If you're out of town this weekend, have a great trip. Hopefully you'll be here, though. So we'll see you then.